Hello and welcome back to the One Take Show podcast. My name is Kostum. In this episode, we are in conversation with Mr. Karan Tripathi. Karan, in his own words, is a multidisciplinarian. He is a lawyer, a legal journalist, currently working as an associate editor for Live Law. In this episode, we talk about his recent PIL before the Delhi High Court, which seeks to include the transgender prisoners in the NCRB prison statistics report. We will also talk about the concept, the rationale behind this PIL. We also will talk about what does it seek to establish and what all things do we need to understand about the inclusion of transgenders in the prison statistics report. If you like this episode, make sure you like, share and subscribe to the channel. If you have any suggestions or feedbacks, write them down in the comment below or reach out to me. I would love it either way. Hence, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's jump right in. Welcome to the One Take Show. I'm truly honored to have this opportunity. In fact, I've been a fan of your work. I've been reading your articles. And it comes to me as a surprise that you're a fresh law graduate. And although I was not aware of the fact, because the maturity in your articles is really stellar, the kind of ideas that you give out, the conveyance of the message is exemplary. And I think every law student who watches this episode can learn a lot about what all work that you've been doing. And I'm very excited about this episode. Thank you so much for taking time out for this conversation and sitting down with me. Thank you for this lovely introduction and thank you for having me on your show. It's always great to talk about the work that one's doing and and what one sort of encounters while doing that work. So it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Perfect. It's an honor for me. I think it's an honor for the podcast itself. Uh, but before we get into the conversation we have lined up here, and it's, it's a very interesting issue. You moved a PIL before the Delhi High Court, and I think it has a lot of issues that we need to talk about as a society as well, and there are a lot of issues that we as law students need to be aware of. But before we get into that, there's a tradition here on this podcast that I, uh, I believe that law students can really learn a lot from the experiences of the guests that I host. So perhaps if you could tell me a little bit about your experience with law, uh, and what has inspired you to do what you do today? And then maybe we can get into the questions. Um, I mean, my experience as law has always transcended uh, mm-hmm. the literal interpretation of law. And uh, fortunately, that from the very beginning of my career post-law school, I've been involved with uh, observing, documenting, and engaging with the practice of law first with the additional public prosecutor when we were doing a lot of boxo and ndps matters mm-hmm. where i got to where i got exposed to uh, you know uh, the politics of law enforcement uh, the okay. prosecuting and investigating strategies and mm-hmm. or what we call in movies the the dark side of uh, of <laughs> law okay. um, uh, and the sinister practices so as to say of mm-hmm. the state and investigating officers um, and later on when i joined live law uh, my exposure uh, to those proceedings was from a, a third party perspective where as an observer, I engaged with various uh, criminal proceedings and various other proceedings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has been a very, um, I would say, not just a, a literal engagement with law in terms of how we interpret law literally, mm-hmm. but also uh, a very sociological engagement mm-hmm. with law and an ethnographic engagement with the courtroom. Uh, because I think when, because my job involved me to sort of uh, visit a wide variety of courts, especially trial courts. Mm-hmm. And when you go to these courts uh, as an observer, as someone who's there to document what is happening, mm-hmm. uh, you not only see uh, the legal proceedings, uh, but you also see the ancillary uh, things that are going on. For instance, the infrastructure of the courtroom, the sociology of the courtroom, how power dynamics play out in a courtroom how mm-hmm. concepts such as caste, class, and gender engage uh, mm-hmm. with the courtroom, uh, within the courtroom. So all of these, uh, uh, which are what I call the sociology of a courtroom and, and ethnography of a courtroom, also becomes apparent. So I realized that if one needs to understand law, one needs to definitely go beyond the books and step into the field, because right. uh, it is only when one steps into the field that one realizes that uh, the complexities that emerge when the letter of the law interacts with identities, diversity of identities, and especially the marginalized identities. And that is a very fascinating part of my engagement with law. 
Right. You do. I think I completely agree with you when you call it uh, the fascinating idea with respect to the engagement of especially the marginal identities with how the courtrooms proceed. There have been multiple instances where the courtrooms have taken upon themselves to perhaps take action into this area. And uh, this also is perhaps one of the themes why this conversation becomes extremely important because quite recently you have moved a PL before the Delhi High Court where you have requested an high court uh, where you ask that uh, the NCRB has failed to reasonably classify the transgenders as separate third gender in its annual publication of the Prisoner Statistics in India report. Now, my question on the face of it becomes is, why is it important for NCRB to take such action and what exactly was the concept behind your PIL? What was the reason with which you moved with this uh, idea in the very first place? I think we first need to understand uh, what Bernard E. Harcourt uh, uh, said called invisibility of prisons and okay. uh, in, a, in, a, in a virtual democracy. So what is invisibility of prisons in a virtual democracy is that we are living in a democracy where the electorate doesn't engage with the political um, uh, uh, with the political decision making that much. I mean, we have been extremely individuated and individualized. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that sort of a virtual democracy, uh, the prisons and the discourse on prisons have been extremely invisibilized for multiple reasons. I mean, uh, the, the felon disenfranchisements, like the prisoners are not allowed to vote. Uh, they do not, um, I mean, no politician or no political party want to associate themselves with prison rights because that would come right. across as them associating with criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are multiple, and then the society also thinks of, uh, of prisons as, as punishment. I mean, they forget that people are sent to prison as punishment and not for punishment. Mm-hmm. And uh, prisons are not meant for punishment. People are, prisoners are sent to prison as punishment. The deprivation of liberty itself is a punishment. Right. So uh, the society very conveniently ignores this fact and accepts and normalizes what we call the pains of imprisonment or uh, the pains that the inmates go through inside the prison. So there is in India, I mean, all over the world, but also in India, there is a huge, huge invisibility of prisons, both from the political spectrum as well as from the society. And that's why I realized that it is very important mm-hmm. that before we talk about concepts such as penal reforms or criminal justice reforms, we first have to disseminate information on what is happening inside our prisons. So before we moved for before we moved for a discourse on penal reforms, we first have to democratize uh, and decentralize the discussion on prisons, and that can only happen when people act, uh, when the democratic participation, as we say, or the people in the society get to know what is happening inside the prisons. And right. so the idea is to is to end the invisibility of prison or work towards uh, you know, solving this invisibility of prisons. Now okay. coming to, uh, so we have to understand that there is largely invisibility of prisons. Now it becomes even more problematic uh, when it comes to inmates or prisoners who come from marginalized uh, sections of society or who sort of identify with identities that we consider as backward or marginalized. Uh, mm-hmm. For them, it becomes even more problematic because my research in prisons have sort of shown me that the hierarchies, the socioeconomic hierarchies that exist outside the society, they mm-hmm. get replicated inside the prisons. Uh, sorry, uh, they exist outside the prisons. They get replicated inside the prisons as well. Okay. So if someone, so uh, the the hierarchies and discrimination that we see in the society on the basis of gender, mm-hmm. on the basis of caste and on the basis of economic uh, background, mm-hmm. that sort of gets replicated uh, inside the prisons also, or something that, uh, you know, Professor Mahua Bondopadhyay said, uh, carceral spillover, okay. that uh, something that happens outside the prison gets, the same thing gets replicated inside the prisons. And we see that uh, prisoners who come from socioeconomic backward backgrounds um, are subjected to uh, exploitation are, sub- are subjected to degrading treatment much more than the prisoners who are able to, um, you know, negotiate privileges and negotiate power inside mm-hmm. the prisons on the or purely on the basis of their identity and their social status. So we realize that within this within this paradigm, uh, the burden of of discrimination and the burden of exploitation 
disproportionately falls on prisoners who identify with marginalized identities okay. so so it it becomes very important that when we talk about uh, discourse on prisons uh, and uh, we're not only talking about the uh, uh, we're, we're not only talking about the structural discourse that is whether prisons have toilets or and i mean this is how the discourse has been in india so far that when we talk about prisons whether you take all the, the justice krishnaiya report mm-hmm. or mulla committee report and if you see the work that chri is doing you see that most of this work is centered around the structural audit of prisons mm-hmm. that uh, you know whether okay fine you have prisons are complying with uh, you know visiting system or there are toilets and and there are enough rooms and all those things um, uh, infrastructure but what we ignore and what the research in india has ignored is the carceral experience of mm-hmm. the prisoners so we are not sort of highlighting that what prisoners feel about their experience inside the prisons what do they feel about uh, pains of imprisonment about prison staff uh, about the uh, prisoner and staff relations about mm-hmm. the uh, about the mental health in prisons about the about uh, degrading treatment inside the prisons and uh, and you know that's why it becomes very important for us to focus on the, this carceral experience because focusing on the carceral experience of the prisoners will give us information as to how can we define ambiguous terms such as human rights violations or degrading treatment how do we define these terms mm-hmm. how do we define these terms we define these terms by by interviewing or by or analyzing the carceral experience of those who are subjected to degrading treatment who are subjected to that power dynamics or that sociology that goes on inside the prisons Mm-hmm. so that's why it becomes very important to visibilize and to study uh, the carceral experience of uh, of of all the prisoners but more so of those who come from backward uh, marginalized identities and socioeconomic backward backgrounds um, mm-hmm. so when i started uh, when i started uh, looking at the idea of transgender prisoners i realized that the biggest uh, problem or the biggest hurdle to researching on transgender prisoners was that there is no data available so uh, so national crime records bureau which publishes the prison statistics of india report is a seminal document is a seminal document for any organization whether it's the independent researchers institutional researchers um, policy makers civil society governments for that matter uh, it's a seminal document for all of them to conduct research on prisons and prison reforms right now uh, i realized when i read that report uh, that that report does not include the third gender that report has invisibilized the data on transgender prisoners now this is problematic because of course of the nalsa judgment because the nalsa judgment very categorically uh, while recognizing third gender uh, uh, and transgender's right to identify as third gender uh, also held that the state authorities have to ensure that in all of their processes and in all of their documentations they have to recognize the third gender so i mean there is a legal uh, there is a legal precedent uh, mm-hmm. that that the ncrb is clearly violating by not including the data on transgender prisoners and capturing the data in binary but what is also fascinating if you look deeper into it that when they are when they are giving out the data in binary mm-hmm. then either of the two things are happening first is they are not collecting the data on transgender prisoners at all mm-hmm. like they are like fine we will not include them at all there is a complete trans erasure okay or they are categorizing or they are categorizing the data on trans prisoners in the binary like they are putting it either in male or female right which is also i mean which is a clear cut violation of nalsa judgment so either of the two things are happening and in both situations they are violating the nalsa judgment uh, which i and i find that that must be addressed and actually i was very i was very shocked i was very very shocked to see that the ncrp has been publishing this report since ages and the nalsa judgment had also come long back and mm-hmm. since then no one has no one has moved the court raising this issue that there is an entire community of prisoners who have been invisibilized in repre- uh, in in the prison statistics statistics of india report and i think this also goes on this also backs my argument of which i made earlier on invisibility of prisons in a virtual democracy that we as a society we as a government 
we do not care about that transgender prisoners were being represented in in uh, mm. prison statistics or not so i think i felt that this must be done this is a very very preliminary step mm. towards working for the rights of transgender prisoners because we cannot talk about exploitation discrimination and degrading treatment of transgender prisoners until unless we know that they exist absolutely we cannot we cannot do shadow boxing no court or no government will listen to you until unless you show them the numbers absolutely so so i felt that a preliminary step towards any research on transgender prisoners has to start with their representation in prison statistics of india report we need we need official numbers we need official data from the government telling us how many trans prisoners are committing suicides how many trans prisoners are 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 are, are being are facing custodial deaths or or under what of or you know any information under what offenses they are being imprisoned that also becomes an interesting study are they being imprisoned under because you know a, a lot of uh, a lot of study in karnataka has shown that transgender prisoners were arrested under arms act or or uh, or, uh, or or offenses such as these which are which sort of carry a moral turpitude and associated with the stigma that is um, related to the stigma that is associated with their identity so it also so you know uh, the different the different categories that prison statistics of india report shows uh, it will it has to include the data on transgender prisoners otherwise we would never know we would never be able to move to second step until unless we we identify that the trans prisoners exist and that's why i moved this pir right right absolutely i think this is absolutely on point as someone who has perhaps not researched on this much but someone who's aware of all these situations that are affecting a very significant amount of people i think i've had a conversation with uh, ms bajanti vasanta mokli where uh, she being a transgender person highlighted how there is an issue of identity erasure where uh, where usually the statutory authorities do resort to identity erasure i think you've already covered this answer to some extent and uh, i uh, but it is extremely important i think for me as well and for all those listeners to particularly identify perhaps in bullet points why is it so important for ncrb to provide the population of our country with a list of transgender persons who are incarcerated who are perhaps in prisons right now does it also serve purposes beyond just identity erasure or does it have multiple implications in your opinion it does have multiple implication i just mentioned mm-hmm. that any work that needs to be done on penal reforms or prison reforms as we talk about as i told you whether custodial deaths and uh, or for that matter overcrowding or or the or the kind of or the kind of recidivism basically um reoffending any research that needs to be done that has to that has to sort of understand the trend of mm-hmm. transgender incarceration it has to have official data it has to look at the official data and the official i mean if you open a, if you read the prison statistics of india report you realize it's a, it carries a wide variety of categories it's a very illustrious report um, so so if you're interested in any part of transgender incarceration or marginalized incarceration you will see that the report becomes very handy in at least identifying the numbers and once you have the numbers once you have the trend then you sort of subject those trends to your qualitative assessment or qualitative research so suppose if i have numbers saying that the 80% of transgender prisoners who died in prisons uh, died of suicides right. so i so this is a very uh, this is a very telling account and now i will sort of place this number this data into my qualitative research when i go and interview transgender prisoners uh and i identify that why this happens and I, i i try to identify by treating their carceral experience and their carceral narratives as as data as data of inquiry mm-hmm. and when i use this as data of inquiry i realize okay fine now 80% suicides that are happening is because of this of you know maybe they are kept in they're not being kept in different cells and that's why they are constantly subjected to exploitation harassment and all those things right. so so uh my point is that in any study that needs to be done in any research that needs to be done uh, on the carceral experience of transgender prisoners or or basically on or any topic of transgender incarceration you need to have their official data and the official data needs to 
represent uh, and I tell you why also it becomes problematic because you have to see how NCRB collects data, right? So mm-hmm. NCRB has a particular performa mm-hmm. that it circulates to different uh, SCRBs and the, and the state bodies and the state governments then sort of fill up that performa and give it to you. Right. Now the point is that, yeah, so, uh, and, and if you read the NALSA judgment, NALSA judgment also gives you directions on how to treat transgender prisoners. How, how do you deal with the concept of lodgement of transgender prisoners? Now, the point is that if I don't even know that there are transgender prisons in the first place, there are transgender cells in the first place, because that's what NASA judgment says, that you know you need to have, uh, you need to provide them with separate lodgement, right? Mm-hmm. And even your Delhi prison rules, uh, the Delhi prison rules of 2018 also provide for special treatment and special lodgement of transgender prisoners. Now, when the transgender category or a third gender category is not even there on the performer, the state governments will not bother to tell me whether they have a sep- whether they are complying with the NASA judgment, whether there is a separate lodgement of transgender prisoners, or so that that information is completely erased. So you realize that the so you realize the concept of identity erasure or what I call the trans erasure, mm-hmm. it is related to it sort of results in subsequent levels of discrimination, right? It is not just a discrimination on the basis of exclusion from the official data but that exclusion from the official data then becomes ground for further exploitation and secondary victimization in the basis of if that suppose any grant is being given to the state government for prison reforms then that that grant will not be spent on transgender prisoners because they don't exist as per the official data or for that matter if there is a transgender person that if if there is a transgender prisoner who has been murdered uh, or who, who has been murdered or who is facing torture in the prison purely on the basis of the fact that they're transgender. I mean, it's a form of hate crime. And we all know that transgender persons are subjected to hate crimes. Uh, and if there is a form of hate crime that has happened against a transgender person inside the prison, and due to that hate crime, that person has been subjected to torture or for that matter, even murder, then the, then the data or the, the information that will go out is that a particular prisoner has died or a particular prisoner has tortured. But we will never be able to identify that whether that was an aggravated form of crime, that whether that was a hate crime and a crime motivated by the stigma towards transgenders. Because I told you that the hierarchies and discrimination that exist outside the prisons, they impinge in prisons as well. They enter prisons as well and they replicate inside the prisons. So it is very hard to believe that that the discrimination that is or the stigma that is associated with transgender community outside the prisons will not get replicated inside the prisons is very difficult to believe and when you do not have a rep- and when you have trans erasure from the official data then it sort of becomes a foundation for secondary victimization and mm-hmm. in terms of both uh, in terms of both providing privileges inside the prison but also in terms of identifying the nature of exploitation that they've been subjected to inside the prisons. Because the prison authorities can simply say that, no, there, there was no transgender. That was a female or there was a male. And then the entire idea of, you know, uh, trans erasure just, uh, or the hate crime or aggravated form of crime just vanishes. So I think that's, that sort of answers your question that how uh, the very preliminary uh, point of erasure, trans erasure from data becomes the foundation for secondary victimization. Absolutely. And I think with respect to the changing times that we're facing, uh, it, it's, as you've pointed out, that there are uh, these, the, all those evils in the society with respect to how the society has perhaps treated these marginalized communities, replicate themselves or perhaps find themselves as well in the prisons. The entire system is also replicated in the prisons, which would mean that there is, to some extent, an exploitation with respect to the civil rights, to the constitutional rights, with respect to the political rights that are to be granted to these transgender persons. And if there is an identity erasure with respect to if them not being even accounted for, these issues become even more problematic. But when this issue comes into the place where we have a pandemic around us and we know that all these, in particularly the transgender community has been perhaps one of the worst, worst hit communities with respect to the employment opportunities, and now we talk about the legal services, the civil, political, constitutional services that should have been provided to the ones who are incarcerated. How does your opinion on what you're trying to perhaps convey through this BIL play out in this scenario? 
does it even get worse for uh, the people who are incarcerated at this moment yes of course i mean mm-hmm. it is not it is not hidden from anyone that prisons in i mean when we talk about uh, punishment and discipline in our country uh, we realize that the punishment and discipline in this country is marred with a sense of violence for us whenever we think of whenever we think of punishment and discipline or control the first thing that comes into our mind is violence that we need to use resort to violence uh, to sort of discipline and that comes and i mean that's what we sort of say a colonial hangover you know how how the prisoners were treated i mean our prison act itself is is the act which was made during the colonial period and it still continues uh, and there's a lot of discussion on how we need to sort of completely rehaul our prison act uh, so uh, so we have to understand that uh, prisons in india unfortunately are not just space are not just places for rehabilitation i think we sort of come far away from the rehabilitative ideal we are no longer following the rehabilitative ideal mm-hmm. rather prisons have become spaces which subject prisoners to sheer hopelessness i mean my research with prisoners who are so i uh, so during the period of the lockdown i got the privilege of doing research on prisoners serving life sentence in delhi prisons uh, and why i sort of chose uh, to interview prisoners serving life sentences because i was inspired by the study done by professor ben crew um, who is from the institute of criminology at cambridge uh, where they where they studied the uh, uh, prisoners subjected to life sentence because these are the prisoners who spend an extremely long amount of time in prisons so they exhibit they exhibit different stages of behavior uh, during their stages of uh, incarceration so it becomes very fascinating to sort of interview them and understand the prison sociology from their perspective because a they have been in prison for very long but also how they have come into terms with the fact that prison is their home and how uh, how do they sort of negotiate their life and their practices and behaviors inside the prison knowing that they are going to stay there for a very 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 long time so my research with prisoners serving life sentences showed me that prisons and i'm talking about prisons in delhi which is supposed to be good prisons i mean the prisons in the national capital mm-hmm. it was horrifying it was horrifying to say the least i mean uh, prisoners have exhibited hopelessness they have exhibited most of the prisons prisoners actually um, got into drugs and got into the habit of um, hard drugs for that matter in when they when they were incarcerated before that they never even used to drink alcohol but once they came inside the prisons they they developed a habit of of taking hard drugs um so there was an extreme uh, i'm telling you the major trends that appeared mm-hmm. and uh, one of those trends was uh, hopelessness towards rehabilitation they feel that uh, there is no point mm-hmm. uh, to even to even sort of come up with a good behavior because that's not going to count there there is a feeling that the entire system is against them both the government is against them the society is against them and uh, of course the jail administration is against them and they feel that the jail administration sort of sets them up for failure you know they want them to fail they want them to not rehabilitate and become contributory members of the society so uh, and also there is complete uh, ignorance and apathy towards the emotional needs of the prisoners the mental health of the prisoners i mean if you look at the prison statistics you see that rising number of suicides been happening inside the prisons and especially uh, especially the women prisons uh, and my report that you i did a report on uh, custodial deaths in delhi prisons in 2020 uh which looked at uh, which used the rti applications to sort of get the data and, and look at what is happening in delhi prisons and it showed that both the prisoners that had died in the jail number 6 which is the main prisons they both died of suicide and they both were under trial prisoners okay so look at the tragedy of it i mean our criminal justice system says that you have to be innocent until proven guilty but when there are two under trial prisoners who are technically innocent until proven guilty are committed suicide inside the prison it sort of tells you that what sort of an environment and what sort of 
a treatment they must have been subjected to or what sort of lack of intervention lack of intervention of of mental health that they must have received uh, that led them to take that step and uh, so so you realize that uh, you know michel foucault used this term that how uh, uh, how the how the prisons and the punishment has moved from you know a uh, spectacle of the scaffold to to the torture of the soul you know that earlier there was a spectacle punishment was used as a spectacle and you were publicly punished and all those things and now the state sort of instead of physically harming you it tortures your soul it breaks down breaks you down as an individual and i think in india what is happening and this is what also uh, professor uh, mawa bandopadhyay also said that in india there is both of them are happening at the same time you're also having spectacle of the scaffold which is sort of reflective in the rising number of custodial deaths and rising number of murders uh, and i mean recently a 23 year old prisoner got murdered in delhi prison mm-hmm. uh, so so you see that the scaffold uh, spectacle of the scaffold is also taking place at the same time there is also torture of the soul that the that the identity of the prisoners are being colonized by this extremely alienating system the system that doesn't care about their rehabilitation and the system that that treats prison as a place for punishment and not as punishment so so there is a lot of and you know what i realize that they are able to the the prison administration and the and the prisons are able to continue with this sort of a system because there is lack of democratic participation in penology because there is invisibility of prisons like we in our day to day lives do not even have a conversation on how the prisoners in our prisons are being kept and you know when you sort of sort of talk to these prisoners and you listen to their stories it opens you up for acceptance and forgiveness you know it immediately makes you think that there must have been so many moments in your life where you would have done something that could have landed you in the place where they are so many moments there's so many triggering moments in our life where we would have committed something that would have landed us there and we are so privileged and fortunate that we escaped that right. and we could we sort of got saved by the destiny mm-hmm. uh, and self and when you have this feeling it opens you up for acceptance and forgiveness which is very very important because you, these prisoners that you talk about to realize Uh, and and also if you look at to the data of prison statistics you see that most of these prisoners come from extremely they are illiterate they come from extremely backward uh, uh societies and my research with probation officers have also told me that most of them uh, come from families that are dysfunctional where uh, the parents are into alcohol abuse drug abuse where these people are introduced to um abuse and violence from the very early stages of their life or where they live in a neighborhood and they live in a society where there is some sort of a you know some sort of inter family violence going on or inter family conflict going on so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of background to mm-hmm. their to the fact that they have been imprisoned and i think what what as a society we fail to realize that when a crime happens Mm-hmm. the effect of a crime is not only on the victim it's on the offender also right because the crime as an effect uh, the crime as an event and crime as an activity not only impacts the victim but it completely changes the life of the offender as well right. so so you know uh, so in this moment i mean when you sort of when you sort of uh, uh, look at these data and you sort of look at these castle experiences you realize that that we as a society has a role to play in their presence in the prison right. you know our com- our the kind of the kind of socio economic inequality that exists in the society the kind of stigma discrimination and alienation that exists in the society and how that stigma and alienation then gets reflected in our electoral politics and through electoral politics it gets reflected in the in the institutions of the state that how police works so you see that whichever the government is in power and their narratives of politics then get replicated in how the police is acting on the street so so police becomes police becomes an extended arm of the state's ideology 
and we see it now more than ever right like you see uh, the kind of things that has been happening on the streets i mean it's so funny i mean you don't even have to put people in prison anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> you can all the things that you have to do in terms of you know violence in terms of confinement in terms of showing your authority and your power mm-hmm. you can simply do it on streets by using police as an extended arm of your ideology so so you realize that uh the way we as a society think in terms of discipline in terms of control in terms of crime in terms of punishment gets reflected in our politics and then sort of gets reflected in how individuals who are not that privileged to participate in this discourse on crime and punishment are then are made targets of of this extended societal thinking so i think it becomes very important for us as a society to not only participate in the discourse on crime and punishment mm-hmm. but also be open to perspectives also be open to informed discussion and informed discourse on mm-hmm. crime and punishment because what we have to see is that the people who are we sending in the prisons are also citizens of india mm-hmm. and they are also guaranteed the rights of the constitution that we are guaranteed i mean the only right that has been taken away from them is the right to live i mean the right to liberty and right to movement right mm-hmm. but the other right and most importantly the right under article 21 and is still guaranteed to them so we need to think about as a society that we cannot punish people to an extent that we take away their right of being a human being yes absolutely and yeah so i mean so yeah so i mean as that's what i was saying that you know all the interviews that i've conducted and the prisoners have said that you know they don't they don't even look at us as humans mm-hmm. i mean they have said that the prison authorities they don't sometimes they don't even look at them as humans they treat them like caged animals so you know these narratives have to come out these stories have to come out and people need to actively engage with what is happening inside our prisons absolutely i think this has been one of the most eye opening conversations that i've had especially this section of the conversation because i being a law student i'm i constantly believe that i'm rather privileged to perhaps have the kind of an education to understand such social political fabric the kind of conversation that goes around and yet despite of me being a law student having done no research whatsoever in this area i do find all of these things very very disturbing also very surprising because i have no idea about them perhaps this is the kind of conversation that would uh, accelerate the issues that we talk about especially when if i somehow bring it back to the uh, uh, the main issue behind apl with respect to the transgenders this issue perhaps becomes even more aggravated you've talked about issues like custodial deaths you've talked about suicides and especially when there is an identity erasure this would even get more problematic i think you very particularly while i was reading reading the article that you just talked about which i will be linking down in the description for all our viewers uh, you've talked about uh, that uh, that you've categorically mentioned that there is a need to ensure timely and expeditious conduction of inquest proceedings and in order to somehow solve this problem uh, that has been arising i would like to request you to please a little, talk about a little bit about what exactly do you mean by this sentence and where do you see uh, you conceptualizing this idea yeah so i mean uh, both in terms of the mandate of the supreme court in the suo moto matter of inhumane conditions in prisons mm-hmm. a very seminal judgment on prison prison reforms in india and uh, the nhrc uh, guidelines on on inquest of custodial deaths inside the prisons they both sort of lay down a criteria for both timely and independent inquiry of deaths that take place inside the prisons and as well as the compensation that needs to be paid mm-hmm. to the families of the bereaved uh, the, the families of the deceased uh, so we realize that when the i mean when a death take place inside the prisons you have to see that again i mean all of it is very much related to the idea of invisibility of prisons that how prisons mm-hmm. are completely aloof from the public eye now when a death take place inside the prison it becomes extremely important for ensuring that the procedures that are laid down are are followed to the t uh, and there's a respect to the procedure that is laid down to ensure that 
the evaluation and adjudication of the nature of the death is done in an extremely transparent and impartial manner to not only understand why the death happened but also to understand where does the responsibility lie and these are the and these are rolling conversations uh mm-hmm. now my research sort of showed me that how uh, in almost uh i mean in almost 80 to 90 uh, actually not 80 at least almost 90% of uh, the deaths that had taken place in the past year uh in in 2020 and in prisons there was no inquest report within the tri- within the time frame uh laid down by the nhrc and which the supreme court had said that must be followed so so it raises i mean uh when we talk about independent inquiry into the deaths in prisons we see that uh, following a timeline and following procedures become becomes extremely important because any every because it's a very sensitive issue mm-hmm. and and the people the the first people who have access to that body or access to that event of death inside the prison are the prison administration itself so so it so if these procedures are not followed completely it creates a reasonable doubt on the intention of the prison administration and the possible cause of the death uh and you know so i was talking one of the actually one of couple of prisoners who actually worked in the administrative department inside the hard prison they told me that when the custodial death took place i and, and they sort of gave me what was the procedure followed what all they did and it showed that the first priority of the prison administration was to ensure that none of their members are implicated in this and there there is no sign to show that there was a negligence on the part of the prison administration so the first thing that they do is to work towards building that narrative mm-hmm. so so uh, it becomes very important and also it becomes very important to process the the compensation right i mean the families of the deceased have a right to know what happened to their loved ones inside the prisons i mean uh, this is a when a prison uh, a prisoner is in the custody of the state so it's the state's responsibility to ensure that the right under article 21 of the prisoner is is guaranteed so when a prisoner is murdered inside the inside a prison or is or has died inside the prison it is the responsibility and the least in responsibility of the state to at least follow the procedures and when they do not follow the procedures you see that not only uh, there is a possibility of tampering with the evidence and the nature of the death and identifying the nature of the death but also of you know uh, of also sort of ensuring that the family of the prisoner comes to peace with what has happened and also they get the compensation so and i mean don't even get me started on how meager that compensation is mm-hmm. but uh, so it really shocked me and I, and i sort of did a follow up inquiry and i asked the department as to you know why this is not there i mean you're supposed to have inquest done report done in two months they said oh it's covid 19 it's pandemic it's lockdown and uh, oh. and you know then and then you know later on i realized that the covid 19 has become a very convenient route for administration to ignore the responsibility um, i mean i had moved a petition in delhi high court seeking to interview transgender prisoners and this is a petition preceding the pir uh because i thought that okay fine ncrb doesn't give me any data let me just individually approach the prisons and ask them that i want to talk to transgender prisoners so i wrote a letter i wrote an email to dg and dg said no we i mean we're not going to allow you covid 19 so i and i very clearly mentioned that i don't want to physically come to prisons i can do it through vc and the prisons are allowing virtual uh, vc uh, vc meetings uh, and i uh, asked uh, and then i moved a petition in delhi high court challenging the uh, the decision of the dg of not allowing me to interview transgender persons and and the high court simply said no we will not interfere there is covid 19 we will not interfere now the okay. point is that so you know uh, i mean the judiciary also has to sort of you know not accept these arguments on the face of it and they need to sort of go deeper and inquire as to how the particular argument of covid-19 is interfering with the relief claimed and i think that needs to be done and that's what also motivated me that you know this individual approaching of prisons is not going to help and you need a structural change 
you need a change at a policy level and that's why i decided it's time to move the pir so uh, so you know it's it's not that i didn't try i tried all possible means available to me before I, and i think that's what even the high court appreciated mm-hmm. the high court said that representation has been moved they have written to you you have done nothing so far right. so so the high court sort of appreciated the fact that i have not simply come to the court saying that allow this i have done my homework i have done i have followed all alternative remedies available to me before i reached the high court so yeah so you know um, and that's why it becomes very important even in the cases of custodial death that these are extremely sensitive matters where the procedures laid down are there to ensure that we reach the truth and we ascertain the truth in the most impartial manner so a covid-19 pandemic cannot be a reason for us to flout those procedures right because flouting those procedures would completely uh, would would completely sub, uh, lead to uh, the idea and the reason for having those procedures and that is ascertaining the truth behind custodial death a complete nuggetry right so you have to see i mean you have to see that what for what are you using the excuse of covid 19 i mean if you are using the excuse of covid 19 for family meetings and or for lawyer meetings i can understand because you know it's very well within the concept of social distancing mm-hmm. but why are you following the excuse of covid 19 for something so important and sensitive if not done properly would completely defeat the purpose of it happening in the first place right and i'm i was so shocked that no one's talking about it i was so shocked i mean i mean uh, you know i i do not have any institutional affiliation with any organization doing research on prisons or or any government body but what really really shocks me that that no and i'm pretty sure i'm not the first one who experienced this mm-hmm. and it again takes me back to the idea of invisibility of prisons absolutely right i think it is absolutely inspiring at every possible level everything that you've talked about everything that you're doing and perhaps the path that you're paving for every law student who tomorrow if starts researching on these issues or perhaps starts looking into this issue would really really benefit a lot and with respect to the positive response from the court that you received i believe was only something that comes out of sheer hard work and the kind of determination the dedication that goes behind i i i mean i being a law student there's uh, there's only so much that i can say appreciate or perhaps even acknowledge being uh, owing to the inexperience that i have or perhaps a kind of uh, exposure that i still need to have but it is essentially important for every law student perhaps everyone in the legal community i won't limit this to the law students to have this conversation especially with someone like you who has exposed themselves with respect to the research that goes behind it the understanding of the courts the understanding of the procedures the various uh, nitty gritties that go behind uh, which i was introduced to through this conversation which i'm truly truly grateful for thank you so much karan for this amazing amazing conversation do you have any closing remarks for our listeners i think because law students as a term has been uh, quite a recurrent theme in our conversation i would like to say that we are at a moment where we see a very disturbing trend from law mm-hmm. students and that are these contempt petition uh, contempt requests that are being moved by certain law students and i i know that they don't represent the majority of the law school law students and i think law students are much more uh, are much smarter than that uh, but i think as law students we also need to and i think this is also coming from i was a law student last year i literally graduated last year so i'm a very freshly minted <laughs> law graduate uh, so uh, i think uh, what we need to do is to understand the limitless potential and possibilities that we carry as law students i mean what we first need to understand is we have to erase these unfounded hierarchies we have created in our head that you know you need to you know sort of do this image worship of someone who's popular and you have to play by the rules set up by your seniors and you can't possibly go beyond your comfort zone and you know do something that you that only professionals are doing so i think all of these ideas need to be deleted the war, there are endless possibilities and people need you you know and i i'm talking from a space of criminal justice i hardly see law students in trial courts i hardly see law students in trial courts and it's very disheartening 
it's very very disheartening because it the trial courts are the foundation and the are the foundation of the criminal justice system they are the underbelly of the criminal justice system and and the majority of your criminal justice system is played out in the trial courts so it is so disheartening to see that law students are not going there it's so disheartening to see law students not working with the prisons and what we also need to work towards and this is what personally i am working towards a lot of lost there are there law students in national law universities that have access to this kind of research i mean i'm seeing that law students in nlu delhi have the very very amazing project 39a center where they have access to research on prisons but we need to sort of create that access for law students in state law universities in 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 local law in law schools which are not as prominent as and do not receive the same amount of patronage as national law universities so we need to reach out there and we need to sort of open up the uh, possibilities and horizon for the law students there because the answers to our legal conundrums are going to come from a decentralized and democratized discourse and that's why we need to visibilize grassroots we need to visibilize the complexities of how the criminal justice system interacts with the marginalized identities at a grassroots level and for that to be visibilized we need the law students at the grassroots so so the uh, my i think the only takeaway that i would would like to give to law students is there is no limitation to possibilities all you need to do is to reach out to the right people is to have this insatiable hunger for the cause that you want to fight for whether it's criminal justice whether it's prisons police or whether it's anything whether it's commercial but have this insatiable hunger to engage with the personal narratives with the people who are at the nucleus of of these of the subject matter of these things and i think that is what i want to would like to convey to the law students that i feel so old because i just i graduated last year and uh this is uh this is i wish someone would have told me this when i was in law school so that's what i'm telling you now perfect i am cherishing this moment i am taking everything in i'm noting your words down i'm having a mixed sort of feelings with respect to inspiration a lot of inspiration and also a pumped up hype where i'm ready to explore all the possibilities and perhaps push all the boundaries <laughs> the millennials have arrived <laughs> absolutely absolutely yes we have and in fact uh, it's truly have been uh, an honor for me to have this conversation and to host you on the podcast i had a wonderful wonderful time speaking to you karan and i hope you had a good time too yes i did thank you so much my pleasure thank, thank you thank you thank you so much karan